Hello and welcome to the second episode of the European Conservatives podcast, Brussels and Beyond, a podcast designed to keep you in the loop about the political wheelings and dealings that are happening here in Brussels and in the capitals of Europe. My name is Zoltan Kotas. First of all, French President Emmanuel Macron caused quite a stir on Monday at a meeting of European leaders in Paris by saying he cannot rule out sending ground troops to Ukraine. Not surprisingly, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that in that case, we would need to talk about the inevitability of direct conflict with NATO. Russian President Vladimir Putin warned on Thursday that any deployment of Western troops in Ukraine would have tragic consequences. The French president's comments come at a time of increased tensions in Europe, with fear that the war in Ukraine could escalate. Some Western European nations are fearful that the potential re-election of Donald Trump as US president would mean the US would no longer commit to protecting them under the NATO Treaty's Article 5. According to reports in Germany, German defence officials are quietly contacting their British and French NATO counterparts to prepare an alternative to the American nuclear umbrella. My colleague Thomas O'Reilly has been reporting about the story. Thomas, what exactly are the Germans looking to do? Well, the story originates in supposed diplomatic chatter between Berlin and, as you said, French and British counterparts over the past few weeks. Uh, it, of course, stems from ca uh, comments made by currently candidate Trump on the campaign trail earlier in, in February. Uh, while German officials have denied the substance of the remarks, it is alleged that Germany is essentially looking for an alternative nuclear shield uh, to that which is provided currently by the United States. Uh, Germany, uh, and even beforehand West Germany, has always been a sort of uh, important cog in NATO's defences. Uh, it's reckoned there are 20 nuclear missiles at a minimum based in Germany. Um, this has been a sort of a flashpoint in the country, both on the right and the left. Um, but yes, it's it's uh, coming in a time that many Western leaders, uh, especially in the Liberal Centre, fear uh, American disengagement, uh, especially in light of the growing consensus that the Ukrainian lines are breaking on the Eastern Front and the potential of a Trump uh, presidency after November. What exactly is Donald Trump demanding of his uh, fellow NATO members? Well, whether it's rhetoric or policy suggestion, uh, suggestions, Trump suggested that uh, the United States would not defend any NATO country uh, that does not meet its 2% requirement per uh, the NATO treaties. In a very sort of typical bombastic uh, suggestion, whether there's any truth to it, whether this is a very typical Trump tactic to talk up. Uh, and, you know, they speak loudly and carry a big stick, we'll, we'll see. But certainly this has put the cat upon the pigeons in various European capitals. Uh, already in Brussels, we see a lurch towards more sort of common European defence policy. This idea has been sort of semi-rejected uh, by various uh, more Eurocritical capitals. Uh, the Financial Times had a very good report about scepticism, even within Europe's uh, industrial defence community. But yes, it's uh, Europe feels that uh, it's going to be having to stand on its own two feet after November. And most estimates put uh, the time needed to create a sort of European alternative to American uh, support at about five to 10 years. 
And in light of recent events on the Eastern Front, that is worrying many European capitals. So we know how European leaders reacted to Trump's words. But on the other side of the spectrum, there's Emmanuel Macron, who basically said that he cannot rule out sending troops to Ukraine. Mm. What, what, What were the reactions to his words in Europe? Yeah, so European leaders had only just gotten over the remarks made by Trump when Macron wandered into the discussion this meet uh, this week at a meeting of European leaders in Paris. Um, his suggestion was in light of the deteriorating situation in Ukraine, European leaders should look squarely at putting boots on the ground. Now, obviously, informal arrangements exist. There's reports of many Polish and very Eastern European nationalities having a sort of presence in Ukraine through third-party proxies, but such a direct presence of Ukraine of Western European forces in Ukraine going towards it over Russia would be a massive escalation in the eyes of most capitals. Unsurprisingly, uh, this idea was shot down entirely. Uh, the most vocal of this criticism came from Sp- Spanish and Iberian officials. Um, even uh, more hawkish countries like Poland. Uh, and Sweden, which has recently just entered, are about to enter NATO, uh, they shrugged off the idea. Uh, France itself has had a sort of ambiguous position on the war. Uh, you know, the sort of strange place France has within the Western Alliance is sort of a outside of this sort of Atlantic uh, community. It's it's uh, definitely manifested in the past two years. But yeah, the, the, idea, um, the idea for now appears sort of dead in the water. Um, Macron is not able to sort of match the rhetoric with a, the potential for a European force. But um, yeah, it's uh, Western lead- leaders are caught between the the potential isolationist uh, current uh, taking over America and what appears to see a increasingly kind of doomed uh, attempt to uh, sustain Ukrainian lines as they stand. But uh, a lot of very interesting heading into the next few months. Thomas, thank you very much. Reacting to Donald Trump's stark warnings on European NATO members not spending enough money on their own defence, the leaders of France, Germany and Poland have all hinted at the possibility of making Europe a military power. According to a recent poll, 87% of Europeans answered yes to the question, does the EU need a common defence policy? But, as Peter Klepper, the editor-in-chief of BrusselsReport.eu, writes in his commentary for the European Conservative, Europeans are most probably not aware that a joint EU army would mean that a French EU commissioner would be given full control over a military force consisting of Swedish, Greek or Dutch soldiers. An EU army would also cost a lot more for the contributing EU nations than their participation in NATO. After years of neglecting defence spending, especially in Germany, Denmark and Sweden, European countries simply cannot do without the defence provided by the United States. So any call for an EU army is a direct threat to our security, writes Peter Klepper. The Hungarian parliament ratified Sweden's NATO accession in a vote held on Monday, paving the way for the Nordic country to become the military alliance's 32nd member state. This was the last major hurdle standing in the way of the Scandinavian country that applied to become a member of the military alliance after Russia's invasion of Ukraine two years ago. Hungary had been delaying ratification because of a strain in bilateral ties with Sweden caused by high-ranking Swedish politicians who had criticised Hungary for its conservative politics. 
The two countries resolved their issues and vowed to re-establish mutual trust during Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson's visit to Budapest last Friday, where he and his counterpart Viktor Orban signed a deal for Budapest to buy four Swedish Gripen fighter jets. NATO General Secretary Jens Stoltenberg welcomed the Hungarian vote, saying Sweden's membership will make us all stronger and safer. The EU Commissioner for Values and Transparency, Vera Jourova, has embarked on a tour in Europe to promote action against alleged Russian disinformation before the European elections in June. In an interview published on Wednesday, the Commissioner claimed that many of Europe's populist right-wing parties are in fact part of the Kremlin's propaganda network and are actively spreading Russian disinformation among their supporters. She said her biggest concern was the German AFD party. Eurova's comments come as no surprise, as right-wing parties are expected to strengthen and gain more seats than they currently have in the European Parliament. The Commissioner noted that the AFD is not alone. While most of the parties she deems problematic are in opposition, two of them are spewing alleged Russian narratives from government. Slovakia's Smer, led by Prime Minister Robert Fito, and Hungary's Fidesz, led by Prime Minister Viktor Orban. The aforementioned parties believe the EU has failed in its strategy on Ukraine and should be calling for peace talks instead of providing Ukraine with military aid. Their rhetoric chimes in with what most European citizens think, despite Eurova's words. A recent study done by Europe's largest foreign policy think tank, the ECFR, shows that 41% of Europeans think Ukraine should be forced to the negotiating table, as opposed to only 31% who think the EU should continue its support indefinitely. Remaining with the EU, during a European Parliament debate in Strasbourg on Tuesday, European Commissioner for Crisis Management Janez Lenarcic called for funding of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees to continue, despite the agency's links to the Hamas terror group responsible for the October 7th attack that killed over 1,200 Israelis and saw over 250 taken hostage. Lenarcic argued that failing to fund the UN agency would have catastrophic consequences and put regional stability at risk. Following revelations that 12 of the agency's employees either aided or participated in the October 7th massacre, 18 countries, including Germany and the United States, halted their funding. Right-wing members of the European Parliament condemned the Commission for financially supporting an organisation infiltrated by Hamas militants. Farmers from all around Europe once again occupy the centre of Brussels, breaking through police barricades with their tractors and clashing with police who use tear gas and water cannons to disperse the protesters. Farmers are unhappy with EU green policies and tax hikes that are destroying their livelihood. Ignoring the concerns of farmers, the European Parliament gave its backing to the so-called Nature Restoration Law, which imposes strict regulations on land, river and sea use to prevent further environmental degradation. French nationalist MEP Aurelia Beigneux warned that national competences were being stripped away from member states as part of an ideological mission to incapacitate EU agriculture. My colleague Jonathan Van Maren has been diving into the world of transgender madness with some great commentaries, which you can read on our website. 
In one article, he writes how Canada's intelligence services are targeting the parental rights movement, a social conservative political movement that aims to restrict the ability of schools to teach certain viewpoints on gender, sexuality and race without parental consent. Though the largest parental rights protests have been spearheaded by Muslim Canadians who have been demanding that their children be exempted from LGBT ideology, the intelligence services believe that the movement is a violent threat to Canada and that the supporters of parental rights and the anti-gender movement are likely connected to neo-Nazi and white nationalist groups. In another piece, my colleague analyzes how the transgender craze is trying to rewrite history by proclaiming certain historical figures, presidents, emperors and Vikings retrospectively as gay or LGBT. Jonathan, should we be amused when we hear about these absurdities or do we need to take them seriously? A bit of both. Uh, I do think it's important to ridicule things that are genuinely ridiculous. At the same time, uh, take, for example, the enormous number of uh, sudden discoveries that we're having uh, where transgender people are being dug up and we've got 3,000-year-old excavations of ancient Persian grave sites that apparently affirm gender ideology in 2024. On one hand, this is ridiculous. On the other hand, the papers that are being published on this stuff are being published by the academics who are shaping a generation of young minds in universities. And I thought that these, these sort of initially one-off stories about all these transgender discoveries, at first I thought they were really amusing. The, the Anglo-Saxon transgenders were, were particularly amusing. And then I realized that they're actually backfilling, that what they're essentially doing is they're producing all of these uh, transgender ancient peoples in order to bludgeon those of us in the present who do not wish to use so-called preferred pronouns uh, and forcing us to, to, to speak about this issue on their terms. Because, of course, if you get to select the language of the debate, then you can hem in the terms of the debate. Yeah, and they also kind of dominating the debate in mainstream politics. Uh, more politicians and parties in the Western world seem to have yielded to the desires of the LGBT lobby. Would you agree with that? No, certainly in virtually every Western country, it'll be interesting to see where the transgender movement goes from here, though, because I think there's been a real backlash just in the last couple of years. And that backlash has been in the UK spearheaded by a strange fusion of social conservatives and radical feminists the most prominent of which would be uh, J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter book. And the reason her speaking out on the trans issue is significant is because she's too big to cancel, essentially. Plenty of people have said what she is saying previously, but they run the risk of getting fired or getting socially ostracized. And so when you've got really rich, really powerful people willing to state the obvious publicly, it's a, it's a big rallying point. So I do think that we're on the cusp of some pretty significant changes in this debate. It's interesting, yeah, as you mentioned, that there are are these groups who have seemingly nothing in common, like mm -hmm. feminists, even uh, you know social conservatives, and then we have like LGB groups, so people yeah. gay and bisexual groups who completely are against what the transgender movement is about. Um, so it's an interesting scope of of, uh, of uh, groups that have come together. Very much so. And and the interesting thing is like the LGB groups and the feminist groups, of course, are um, opposed to transgender ideology because trans ideology undermines fundamental uh, premises of their own movements, right? Because if you can change your sex more or less at will, if there are 72 genders, if gender fluidity is a thing, then there's no such thing as same sex attraction. 
which is one of the big fights on the feminist side of things because you have all of the, these lesbians being accused of being transphobic for not wanting to date a male calling himself a woman, um, which is you know what being a lesbian is, is all about, not wanting to date a male-bodied person. And so it's, it's really interesting because we all oppose these things for, for different reasons. We just collectively recognize that uh, this boundary is one boundary too far. And so I try to avoid the schadenfreude of noting that um, the feminist movement and the gay rights movement broke down a lot of barriers and smashed a lot of fences and are now realizing that once you smash fences, it's very easy to continue to do so without stopping. And eventually you get to fences that they quite like and would like to keep up. How is free speech being impacted by so-called hate speech laws that are, that are intended to protect LGBT communities from being insulted? That's a, that question could be a, a podcast all by itself because there are so many individual implications. I think the one that I would point out that I think is the most recent and most insidious, again, is the mandating of so-called preferred pronouns, which is to say if there's a, a man who identifies as a woman, that we are, are not only morally obligated, but legally obligated to call him a she. And this is obviously uh, horrifying for a number of reasons. It's it's sort of uh, it's forcing people to lie. It's it's compelled speech. It's forcing us to affirm something that we believe to be wrong. And I think the most grotesque example of this uh, was uh, a recent court case in which a young woman who had been sexually assaulted by a male, um, they had to refer to that male as she because the male rapist decided to identify uh, as female. And you can imagine that this would re-traumatize somebody who's endured um, abuse at the hands of a male, but is now obligated by law to refer to her attacker as a she. The same thing happened in the UK a couple of years back, where uh, it was actually suggested uh, by a cabinet minister uh, that female prisoners locked behind bars with trans-identifying males could actually have uh, time added to their prison sentences for the crime of misgendering those. And uh, one woman who was actually sexually assaulted behind bars by a trans-identifying uh, male was referred to as transphobic by that prisoner's attorney. Jonathan, thank you very much. Absolutely. My colleague Alvaro Peñas has a very insightful interview with Alejandro Macaron, an expert in European demographics who paints a bleak picture about the future prospects of Europe. He says that the consequences of low birth rates will be disastrous on a social and collective level and also on a human level because antinatalism leads both to an aging society due to the lack of young people and to a very sad society due to effective poverty. Alejandro Macaron believes there are political and economic interests in favour of propagating these ideas and there is an obvious alliance between the left and those who make money out of climate change. He adds that the birth campaigns being carried out in the West are horrendous, especially when we are in the process of demographic suicide. To read what the expert has to say about the effects of immigration and how the latest generation of feminists have got it wrong, go to europeanconservatives.com. Speaking of demographics, Simon P. Kennedy, senior research fellow at the University of Queensland, writes in his essay about the different proposals governments have come up with to tackle the declining birth rate that is prevalent all across the Western civilization. Some have turned to immigration as a solution, others try to encourage families to have children with pro-fertility policies. Australia had success with its so-called baby bonus policy in the early 2000s, 
paying families thousands of Australian dollars upon the birth of a child, which resulted in the birth rate rising from 1.7 in 2001 to almost 2 by 2008. For a population to sustain itself, women need to, on average, bear 2.1 or more children. In other words, the baby bonus worked, but the policy was abolished in 2014 and Australia's fertility rate has since declined to below 1.6. Hungary is on a similar track. Since coming to power in 2010, the Fidesz government of Viktor Orban has increased spending on family policies from year to year, increasing the fertility rate from 1.2 to 1.5. To find out more on what is driving Hungary's family policies, check out our website. Cyprus is also facing a demographic crisis. While the birth rates are at an alarming 1.3 births per woman, the Republic of Cyprus hosts the most refugees per capita within the European Union. Some 50,000 people reside illegally in the country that has a population of 1.2 million. Nearly 50% of the pupils in Nicosia, the capital of Cyprus, have a migrant background. Many migrants arriving in Cyprus end up taking part in illegal activities run by organized crime. The government of Cyprus says the crisis is creating significant demographic change, ghettoization in urban areas and acute socio-economic effects. The EU's disastrous migration policies, which are focused more on managing illegal migration than actually stopping it, are making its mark in another corner of Europe, namely the Republic of Ireland, where one in five people living in the country were not born there. Though there have recently been a spate of brutal crimes committed by immigrants and a wave of protest against open border immigration policies, the two parties that have governed Ireland for decades, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, are visibly not listening to the worries of their voters. The main opposition party, Sinn Féin, is even more of a staunch supporter of mass migration and has supported the government's bid to bring in the most draconian hate speech law of any Western nation. The bill is widely seen as an attempt to clamp down on criticism of the government's handling of immigration. According to opinion polls, 75% of people thought that Ireland was taking too many refugees, but as Ian Lenihan, an independent journalist and researcher, writes in his commentary for the European Conservative, all political options are close to them because, in essence, there is no opposition in Ireland. And that concludes the second episode of Brussels and Beyond. Don't forget to read our magazine, check out our website, subscribe to our Twitter, Facebook and YouTube channels and watch our monthly TV show Inside Brussels. Hope you tune again next week. Have a very good week. Bye bye.